It is April 6th. Modern scripture records that Jesus Christ was born on this day. Humbly, I speak of this glorious being to whom each of us owes so very much. I know that what the scriptures teach of him is true and will use some of them in expressing personal feelings. Paul testified, though he were a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Eternal salvation, how precious! But you must obey him to obtain it. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. And if you keep my commandments and endure to the end, you shall have eternal life, shall never die, shall have eternal life. You must be obedient and endure to the end. I testify that the Lord came into the world, that he may save all men if they will hearken unto his voice, that he suffered the pains of all men, that he was crucified, that the resurrection might pass upon all men, that all might stand before him at the great and judgment day. I witness that he commandeth all men that they must repent and be baptized in his name, having perfect faith in him, and endure to the end, or they cannot be saved in the kingdom of God. Repent, be baptized, have perfect faith in him, endure to the end. These are some of the essential requirements that must be met. I know that there is no other way nor means whereby men can be saved, only through the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. I witness that Jesus Christ atoned for the sins of the world to bring about the plan of mercy, to appease the demands of justice, that God might be a perfect, just God and a merciful God also. I testify that except for the atonement of the Holy Redeemer, the demands of justice would prevent every soul born to earth from returning to the presence of God to partake of His glory and exaltation. For all make mistakes for which we cannot personally appease justice. I witness that except for the infinite atonement of Christ, we could not return to God at death. And as Jacob solemnly warned, our spirits would become subject to the devil to rise no more, and our spirits would become likened to him, and we would become devils, angels to a devil, to be shut out from the presence of our God, to remain with the father of lies in misery. I witness that redemption cometh in and through the Holy Messiah unto all those that have a broken heart and a contrite spirit.
and unto none else can the ends of the law be answered. This absolute requisite of a broken heart and a contrite spirit prescribes the need to be submissive, compliant, humble, that is, teachable, and willingly obedient. Finally, I witness how great the importance to make these things known into the inhabitants of the earth, that they may know that there is no flesh that can dwell in the presence of God, save it be through the merits and mercy and grace of the Holy Messiah. Jesus Christ possessed merits that no other child of Heavenly Father could possibly have. He was a God, Jehovah, before his birth in Bethlehem. His Father not only gave him his spirit body, but Jesus was his only begotten Son in the flesh. Our Master lived a perfect, sinless life and therefore was free from the demands of justice. He was and is perfect in every attribute, including love, compassion, patience, obedience, forgiveness, and humility. His mercy pays our debt to justice when we repent and obey Him. Even with our best efforts, we will still fall short. Yet, because of His grace, we will be saved. After all, we can do. Although our memory of it is withheld, before we came to this earth, we lived in the presence of God our Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. We shouted for joy when given the privilege of coming to this earth to receive a body. We knew that we'd be tested here. Our determination was to live obediently, to be able to return to be with our Father forever. Part of that testing here is to have so many seemingly interesting things to do that we can forget the main purposes for being here. Satan works very hard so that the essential things won't happen. The plan is really very simple when considered in its essence. The Lord has told us that we are here to be tried, to be proven, to see whether we'll be valiant and be obedient to his teachings. You, among all of the people on earth, have the best possibility of doing that because you have access to the fullness of the restored gospel and the teachings of the Savior. In quiet moments when you think about it, you recognize what is critically important in life and what isn't. Be wise and don't let good things crowd out those that are essential. What are the essential ones? They are related to doctrine. They are centered in ordinances and embrace critical covenants. Those ordinances are baptism and confirmation into His Church and kingdom on earth. For men, they include worthy ordination to the Melchizedek priesthood and honoring and using it in service to others. For each adult man and woman, they entail 
all of the ordinances of the temple, including one's own personal endowment. They embody the sealing ordinances of the temple, where a man and wife are bound so that through obedience they can live together for time and all eternity. When faithful, the children born to that union or later sealed to their parents are joined in love and rejoicing throughout all eternity. To receive all of the blessings of his atoning sacrifice, we are only asked to be obedient to his commandments and to receive all of these essential ordinances. The atonement will not only help us overcome our transgressions and mistakes, but in his time it will resolve all inequities of life, those things that are unfair, which are the consequence of circumstance or others' acts and not our own decisions. While some may not understand nor agree, I testify that it is not sufficient to be baptized and then live an acceptable life, avoiding major, major transgressions. The Lord has decreed that the additional ordinances and covenants that I have mentioned must be received for exaltation and eternal life. Being worthy of temple ordinances means that you will choose to do what many in the world are not willing to do. You will keep the Sabbath day holy, exercise faith through the payment of tithing and fast offerings, consistently participate in Church worship, give service, and show love for your family by helping each member of it. After you have received all of the temple ordinances, you will continue to grow by keeping the covenants made and faithfully enduring until the end. Keeping the covenants is not hard when you do it willingly, with a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Study the things you do in your discretionary time. That time you are free to control. Do you find that it is centered in those things that are of highest priority and of greatest importance? Or do you unconsciously, consistently fill it with trivia and activities that are not of enduring value nor help you accomplish the purpose for which you came to earth? Think of the long view of life, not just what's going to happen today or tomorrow. Don't give up what you most want in life for something you think you want now. The essential things must be accomplished during your testing period on earth. They must have first priority. They must not be sacrificed for lesser things, even though they are good and worthwhile accomplishments after this life. You will be restored to that which you have here allowed yourself to become. Oh, if I but had the capacity to communicate, the peace and serenity that come from knowing that you and your family have worthily received 
all of the saving ordinances and the corresponding covenants are being righteously kept, I encourage you with every capacity that I possess to receive all of the ordinances for salvation and do all you can to have the other members of your family receive those ordinances before departing this earth. You can progress more, much more rapidly here on earth with your mortal body in this environment of good and evil than you will as a spirit in the spirit world. Compared to the length of a normal life, it doesn't take much time to receive all of the ordinances essential to exaltation. It does take diligence, understanding, and obedience. It does require that you do all within your capacity to qualify for those ordinances and to receive as many as you are able. Where for reasons beyond your control, you're not able to receive them all, live worthily and do not disqualify yourself through neglect, indifference, or unworthiness. The Lord will make it possible for you to receive all of the blessings He has promised in His time and place. Whether you intend to or not, when you live as though the Savior and His teachings are only one of many other important priorities in your life, you are clearly on the road to disappointment. Is it really wise to forfeit eternal happiness by fulfilling only part of the requirements? I pray that you will be moved to make needed changes now. If you strayed in transgression, please come back. If you have been enticed by the things of the world to forget the things of God, correct your priorities. If you haven't received all of the essential ordinances, decide now to do what is necessary to receive them. Oh, how grateful we must be for the Atonement wrought by our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. It gives life richness and joy when we live the pattern described in this scripture. They did fast and pray oft and did walk stronger and stronger in humility and firmer and firmer in the faith of Christ unto the filling their souls with joy and consolation, even to purifying and the sanctification of their hearts, which sanctification cometh because of their yielding their hearts unto God. I witness that remission of sins through the Atonement bringeth meekness and lowliness of heart, and because of meekness and lowliness of heart cometh the visitation of the Holy Ghost, which Comforter filleth with hope and perfect love. I testify that God, your eternal Father, loves you. He hears your prayers and will answer them. The Redeemer loves you and will help you do the essential things that bring happiness now and forever. 
I am a witness of Jesus Christ. I know that he lives. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Early in our married life, when Sister Nelson and I lived in Minneapolis, we decided to enjoy a free afternoon with our two-year-old daughter. We went to one of Minnesota's many beautiful lakes and rented a small boat. After rowing far from shore, we stopped to relax and enjoy the tranquil scene. Suddenly, our little toddler lifted one leg out of the boat and started to go overboard, exclaiming, Time to get out, Daddy! Quickly, we caught her and explained, No, dear, it's not time to get out. We must stay in the boat until it brings us safely back to land. Only with considerable persuasion did we succeed in convincing her that leaving the boat early would have led to disaster. Children are prone to do such dangerous things simply because they have not acquired the wisdom their parents have. Similarly, we as children of our Heavenly Father may foolishly want to get out of the boat before we arrive at destinations He would like us to reach. The Lord teaches over and over that we are to endure to the end. This is a dominant theme of the scriptures. One example may serve to represent many passages that convey a similar message. Blessed are they who shall seek to bring forth my Zion, for they shall have the gift and the power of the Holy Ghost. And if they endure unto the end, they shall be lifted up at the last day and shall be saved in the everlasting kingdom of the Lamb. Blessings bestowed by God are always predicated upon obedience to law. Applied to my analogy— We are first to get on the boat with him. Then we are to stay with him. And if we don't get out of the boat before we should, we shall reach his kingdom, where we will be lifted up to eternal life. The term lifted up relates to a physical law that can be illustrated by a simple demonstration. I will use a spool of thread and blow into the axial hole of the spool. The force of my breath will move a piece of tissue paper away from me. Next, I will take an ordinary card and a straight pin. I will place the pin through the card. With the pin in the hole of the spool, I will hold the card close to the spool. I will again blow into the hole of the spool. As I blow, I will let go of the card so that it can respond to physical forces. Before I proceed, would you like to predict what will happen? Will I blow the card away from me, or will the card be lifted up toward me? Are you ready? Did you notice? As long as I had sufficient breath, the card was lifted up. But when I could endure no longer, the card fell. When my breath gave out, the opposing force of gravity prevailed. If my energy could have endured, the card would have been lifted up indefinitely. 
Energy is always required to provide lift over opposing forces. These same laws apply in our personal lives. Whenever an undertaking is begun, both the energy and the will to endure are essential. The winner of a five-kilometer race is declared at the end of five kilometers, not at one or two. If you board a bus to Boston, you don't get off at Burlington. If you want to gain an education, you don't drop out along the way, just as you don't pay to dine at an elegant restaurant, only to walk away after sampling the salad. Whatever your work may be, endure at the beginning, endure through opposing forces along the way, and endure to the end. Any job must be completed before you can enjoy the result for which you are working. So wrote the poet, Stick to your task till it sticks to you. Beginners are many, but enders are few. Honor, power, place, and praise will always come to the one who stays. Stick to your task till it sticks to you. Bend at it, sweat at it, smile at it, too. For out of the bend and the sweat and the smile will come life's victories after a while. Sometimes the need to endure comes when facing a physical challenge. Anyone afflicted with a serious illness or with the infirmities of age hopes to be able to endure to the end of such trials. Most often, Intense physical challenges are accompanied by spiritual challenges as well. Think of the early pioneers. What if they had not endured the hardships of their westward migration? There would be no sesquicentennial celebration this year. Steadfastly, they endured through persecution, expulsion, a governmental order of extermination, expropriation of property, and much more. Their enduring faith in the Lord provided lift for them, as it will for you and for me. The Lord's ultimate concern is for the salvation and exaltation of each individual soul. What if the Apostle Paul's conversion had not been enduring? He never would have testified, as he did at the end of his ministry, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. What if Jesus had wavered in his commitment to do his Father's will? His atonement would not have been accomplished. The dead would not be resurrected. The blessings of immortality and eternal life would not be. But Jesus did endure. During his final hour, Jesus prayed to his Father, saying, I have glorified thee on earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Early in his mortal ministry, Jesus became concerned about the commitment of his followers. He had just fed the 5,000, then had taught them the doctrines of the kingdom. But some had murmured, This is an hard saying. Who can hear it? Even after he had fed them, Many lacked the faith to endure with him. He turned to the twelve and said, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, thou hast the words of eternal life, 
And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter's answer defines the real core of commitment. When we know without a doubt that Jesus is the Christ, we will want to stay with him. When we are surely converted, the power to endure is ours. This power to endure is critical in those two most important relationships we enter into in life. One is marriage, the other is membership in the Lord's Church. These are also unique in that they are both covenant, not contractual, relationships. Marriage, especially temple marriage, and family ties involve covenant relationships. They cannot be regarded casually. With divorce rates escalating throughout the world today, it is apparent that many spouses are failing to endure to the end of their commitments to each other. And some temple marriages fail because a husband forgets that his highest and most important priesthood duty is to honor and sustain his wife. The best thing that a father can do for his children is to love their mother. President Gordon B. Hinckley made a statement recently that each Latter-day Saint husband should heed. Magnify your wife, he said, and in so doing you will magnify your priesthood. To his profound advice, we might, might couple the timeless advice of Paul, who said, Let every one of you love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Enduring love provides enduring lift through life's trials. And enduring marriage results when both husband and wife regard their union as one of the two most important commitments they will ever make. The other commitment of everlasting consequence is to the Lord. Unfortunately, some souls make a covenant with God, signified by the sacred ordinance of baptism, without a heartfelt commitment to endure with him. Baptism is an extremely important ordinance, but it is only initiatory. The supreme benefits of membership in the Church can only be realized through the exalting ordinances of the temple. These blessings qualify us for thrones, kingdoms, principalities, and powers in the celestial kingdom. The Lord can readily discern between those with superficial signs of activity and those who are deeply rooted in his Church. This Jesus taught in the parable of the sower. He observed that some have no root in themselves, and so endure but for a time. Afterward, when affliction or persecution ariseth for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. Loyalty to the Lord carries an obligation of loyalty to those called by the Lord to lead his church. He has empowered that men be ordained to speak in his holy name as they guide his unsinkable boat safely toward the shore of salvation, we would do well to stay on board with them. No waters can swallow the ship where lies the master of ocean and earth and skies. Nevertheless, some individuals want to jump out of the boat before reaching land, and others, sadly, are persuaded out 
by companions who insist that they know more about life's perilous journey than do prophets of the Lord. Problems often arise that are not of your own making. Some of you may innocently find yourselves abandoned by one you trusted. But you'll never be forsaken by your Redeemer who said, I, the Lord, am bound when ye do what I say. Without a strong commitment to the Lord, an individual is more prone to have a low level of commitment to a spouse. Weak commitments to eternal covenants lead to losses of eternal consequence. Laments later in life are laced with remorse, as expressed in these lines. For of all sad words of tongue or pen, the saddest are these, it might have been. We're speaking of the most important of all blessings. The Lord said, If you keep my commandments and endure to the end, you shall have eternal life, which gift is the greatest of all the gifts of God. Each of you who really wants to endure to the glorious end that our Heavenly Father has foreseen should firmly establish some personal priorities. With many interests competing for your loyalty, you need to be careful first to stay safely on the boat. No one can serve two masters. If Satan can get you to love anything—fun, flirtation, fame, or fortune—more than a spouse or the Lord with whom you have made sacred covenants to endure, the adversary begins to triumph. When faced with such temptations, you will find that strength comes from commitments made well in advance. The Lord said, Settle this in your hearts, that ye will do the things which I will teach and command you. He declared through his prophet Jeremiah, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be my people. When priorities are proper, the power to endure is increased. And when internalized, those priorities will help keep you from going overboard. They will protect you from cheating in marriage, in the Church, and in life. If you really want to be like the Lord, more than anything or anyone else, you'll remember that your adoration of Jesus is best shown by your emulation of Him. Then you will not allow any other love to become more important than love for your companion your family, and your Creator. You will govern yourself not by someone else's set of rules, but by revealed principles of truth. Your responsibility to endure is uniquely yours, but you are never alone. I testify that the lifting power of the Lord can be yours if you will come unto Christ and be perfected in Him. You will deny yourselves of all ungodliness, and you will love God with all your might, mind, and strength. The living prophet of the Lord has issued a clarion call. I invite every one of you, said President Hinckley, to stand on your feet and with a song in your heart move forward, living the gospel, loving the Lord, and building the kingdom. Together we shall stay the course and keep 
the faith. I pray that each of us may so endure and be lifted up at the last day. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Springtime brings these beautiful flowers, the pollen, and hay fever. I apologize for a hay fever voice today. After arriving in the Salt Lake Valley, the Mormon pioneers found establishing settlements in the desert to be a real challenge. Daily they encountered trials and hardships that kept reminding them that their new life was very different from the one they had been accustomed. There were homes to build, land to develop, irrigation ditches to dig, gardens to plant, wood to chop, and cattle to herd. Also, there were constant immigrations into Utah, droughts, and the grasshopper plague, all making the economy of this new territory very uncertain because of the great effort required to provide for their families, some of the early pioneers drifted into spiritual lethargy. This was of grave concern to the early Church leaders. They believed that some of their struggles were the direct result of the saints' laxity in keeping the commandments. In 1856, the First Presidency commenced the Reform Movement. Church leaders traveled throughout the territory crying repentance to the saints. They sent the block teachers out with a list of questions to ask the families. Some of these questions were, Have you betrayed your brethren or sisters in anything? Have you committed adultery? Have you taken the name of deity in vain? Have you been intoxicated with strong drink? Have you paid your debts? Do you teach your family the gospel of salvation? Do you pray night and morning with your family? Do you attend your ward meetings? The saints were challenged by their leaders to rededicate themselves, to serve the Lord and keep His commandments, and they accepted their leaders' counsel and repented. In 1997, We have many of the same concerns, although our world is very different today. All of these questions would still be very appropriate if asked today. Moreover, the list could probably be expanded due to new sources of temptation that the early pioneers could not have anticipated. Increasingly, the balance between living in the world and not being of the world is becoming more delicate. Publications, radio, television, the Internet have surrounded us with worldliness. Some of the television programs and programming has caused such a negative public outcry that a rating system has been established so that viewers can evaluate the content of the programs. Surely this is an admission that there is a great deal available to us that must be avoided. The question is whether or not we can trust others to make rating decisions for us. We are fortunate to have been blessed with a special power to direct us in making important decisions between right 
and wrong. With this special, sacred time that the Savior realized that his earthly ministry was about at an end, he gathered his twelve together in what we call the Last Supper. He gave them hope that they would not be left alone after he had departed from them. He comforted them with these words, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. At where I am, there ye may be also. Upon receiving this blessed assurance, the other Judas, not Iscariot, asked, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us, and not unto the world? Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. After the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, the promised Comforter was given to those who would submit themselves to be baptized by water and be numbered among his saints. It was on the day of Pentecost that there was a great manifestation that was given to the twelve, and they were filled with the Holy Ghost. Peter called on those assembled to repent and be baptized, and then they would receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. A similar event occurred when the Savior appeared to the Nephites. Dark days followed the establishment of the Savior's Church as apostasy entered in among the membership of the Church. Priesthood authority was removed from the earth because of the unrighteousness of the people. Light returned to the world through Joseph Smith when he received the first vision in 1820. For a decade, the prophet Joseph Smith was carefully prepared to reestablish God's Church. He received priesthood authority, first the Aaronic priesthood from John the Baptist, then the Melchizedek priesthood from Peter, James, and John. Revelations were given to Joseph as God's voice was heard from the heavens. A communication link between God and his prophet was restored. As a small congregation gathered on April 6th of 1830, to organize the Church, the Prophet Joseph Smith asked those present if they were willing to accept him and Oliver Cowdery as their teachers and special advisors. Those present raised their hands in support. Although they had previously received the Melchizedek priesthood, Joseph and Oliver then ordained each other to the office of elder. They did this so to signify that they were elders in the newly organized Church. The sacrament of the Lord's Supper was administered next. Joseph and Oliver then confirmed those 
who had previously been baptized as members of the Church of Jesus Christ and bestowed upon them the gift of the Holy Ghost. What a tremendous privilege it is to be numbered among those who by the power of the priesthood have been baptized by water and then have had hands laid upon their heads and received the Holy Ghost. Elder LeGrand Richards, describing the gift of the Holy Ghost, said, To me the gift of the Holy Ghost is as important to man as sunshine and water are to the plants. You take them away and the plants would die. You take the Holy Ghost out of this church, and this church would not be any different than any other church. And it is manifest in so many ways in the lives and devotion of the Church members. Gifts are only have limited value unless they are used. The Holy Ghost will be our constant companion if we submit ourselves to the will of our Father in Heaven, always remembering Him and keeping His commandments. I remember a critical time in my life and how grateful I was when a still, small voice gave me direction to make an important decision. I had been with a retail firm for a number of years. We had enjoyed extraordinary success. We wanted to expand the business but needed a great deal of capital. In an attempt to raise the money, we contacted the best financial advisors we could find. They encouraged us to merge with a larger firm. The merger was successfully completed, and I was asked to sign a five-year contract to give continuity to management. Within a matter of months, I found myself in a very difficult situation. The new owners wanted me to violate a trust that I felt I just could not do. After long discussions, they continued to insist, and I continued to refuse. Seeing there was no way to break the deadlock, I agreed to leave the company. The timing for me was devastating. I had a wife who was seriously ill and required a lot of medical attention, a daughter away to college, and a son on a mission. I spent the next year just getting enough consulting work to pay my expenses. After about one year struggling, a company called me from California and invited me to come out and talk to them about working for them. I went out and negotiated a very good contract. I was delighted with the opportunity. I told them that I had to return home and discuss it with my family before I could give an answer. I returned home and after a careful discussion, I convinced my family that it was the right thing to do. In the process of calling the firm to accept the offer, a voice just as strong and powerful as I have ever heard came to me and said, Say no to the offer. I could not ignore the voice, so I turned the offer down. But I was distressed. I could not comprehend why I had been told to do such a thing. I went upstairs to my bedroom, sat on the bed, opened the scriptures, and they fell open to the Doctrine and Covenants, section 111. This was the only section given in the state of Massachusetts, where my home was at that particular time. These words literally jumped out of the page and met my eye. Concern not yourself about your debts. I will give you power to pay them.
tarry in this place and in the regions round about. A great peace came to my soul. Within just a few days, I was offered a fine position in Boston. A few months later, I had the great privilege of hosting a conference in which President Harold B. Lee was the featured speaker, he then being first counselor in the First Presidency. The conference was a glorious success as we feasted on the words of President Lee. The following July, President Joseph Fielding Smith passed away and President Lee became the prophet. Three months later, I was asked to come to Salt Lake, where I received a call to leave my profession and join the general authorities. I've often wondered what would have happened if I had not heeded the Holy Spirit in counseling me not to leave Boston. Polly P. Pratt gave us a vision of what the gift of the Holy Ghost could mean to us when he said, The gift of the Holy Ghost quickens all the intellectual faculties, increases, enlarges, expands, and purifies all the natural passions and affections, and adapts them by the gift of wisdom to their lawful use. It inspires, develops, cultivates, and matures all of the fine-toned sympathies, joys, tastes, kindred feelings, and affections of our nature. It inspires virtue, kindness, goodness, tenderness, gentleness, and charity. It develops beauty of a person, form, and features. It tends to health, vigor, animation, and a social feeling. It invigorates all the faculties of the physical and intellectual man. It strengthens and gives tone to the nerves. In short, it is, as it were, marrow to the bone, joy to the heart, light to the eyes, music to the ears, and life to the whole being. I bear witness the power and comfort the gift of holy, the Holy Ghost is to those who live worthy of it. What a reassurance it is for us to know that we are not left alone to find the course that we must follow to merit the eternal blessings of our Father in Heaven. We do not need man-made rating systems to determine what we should read, what we should watch, what we should listen to, or how we should conduct our lives. What we do need to do is to live worthy of the continued companionship of the Holy Ghost and have the courage to follow the promptings that come into our lives. May the Lord bless us that we may ever be mindful of this great and precious gift, even the gift of the Holy Ghost. I humbly pray in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. With that picture as a backdrop, I wish to say something in recapitulation of what we have already heard and seen. On this, the birthday of the Church. As we've been reminded a number of times, this is a great anniversary year. And I wish to go on record concerning the magnitude of what our forebears accomplished and what this means to us. 
It is a story with which most of you are familiar, but it is worth another telling. It is a story so large in scope, so fraught with human suffering and the workings of faith that it will never grow old or stale. Whether you are among the posterity of the pioneers or whether you were baptized only yesterday, each is the beneficiary of their great undertaking. What a wonderful thing it is to have behind us a great and noble body of progenitors. What a marvelous thing to be the recipients of a magnificent heritage that speaks of the guiding hand of the Lord, of the listening ear of His prophets, of the total dedication of a vast congregation of saints who love this cause more than life itself. Small wonder that so many hundreds of thousands of us, yea, even millions, will pause this coming July to remember them, to celebrate their wondrous accomplishments, and to rejoice in the miraculous thing that has grown from the foundation they laid. Permit me to quote for you from Wallace Stegner, not a member of the Church, but a contemporary at the University of Utah who later became professor of creative writing at Stanford and a Pulitzer Prize winner. He was a close observer and a careful student. He wrote this concerning these forebears of ours, quote, They build a commonwealth, or as they would put it, a kingdom. But the story of their migration is more than the story of the founding of Utah. In their Hagira, they opened up southern Iowa from Locust Creek to the Missouri, made the first roads, built the first bridges, established the first communities. They transformed the Missouri at Council Bluffs from a trading post and an Indian agency into an outpost of civilization, founded settlements on both sides of the river, and made winter quarters and later Canesville into outfitting points that rivaled Independence, Westport, and St. Joseph. Their guidebooks and trail markers, their bridges and ferries, though made for the saints scheduled to come later, served also for the Gentiles. He continues, The Mormons were one of the principal forces in the settlement of the West. Their main body opened southern Iowa, the Missouri frontier, Nebraska, Wyoming, Utah. Samuel Brannan's group of Eastern Saints who sailed around the Horn in the ship Brooklyn and the Mormon battalion <clears throat> that marched 2,000 miles overland from Fort Leavenworth to San Diego were second prongs of the Mormon movement. Between, between them, they contributed to the opening of the Southwest and of California. Battalion members were at Coloma when gold gleamed up from the bedrock of Sutter's Mill Race. Brigham Young's colonizing Mormons, taking the wheels again after the briefest stay, radiated outward from the Salt Lake, Utah, and Weber Valleys and planted settlements that reached from northern Arizona to the Limhi River in Idaho and from Fort Bridger in Wyoming to Genoa in Carson Valley and in the southwest down through St. George and Las Vegas to San Bernardino. That is a capsule account of their remarkable achievements. In a period of seven years, our people who had fled 
the extermination order of Governor Boggs of Missouri, came to Illinois and built the largest city then in the state. It was on the shores of the Mississippi, where the river makes a great sweeping bend. Here they constructed brick homes, a school, chartered a university, erected an assembly hall, and built their temple, reportedly the most magnificent structure then in the entire state of Illinois. But hatred against them continued to inflame. It culminated in the death of their leader, Joseph Smith, and his brother Hiram, who were shot and killed at Carthage on June 27, 1844. Brigham Young knew they could not stay there. They determined to move west to a faraway place, where, as Joseph Smith had said, the devil cannot dig us out. On February 4, 1846, wagons rolled down Parley Street to the river. Here they were ferried across and began to roll over the soil of Iowa. The weather subsequently turned bitter cold. The river froze. They crossed on the ice. Once they said goodbye to Nauvoo, they consigned themselves to the elements of nature and to the mercy of God. When the ground thought it was mud, deep and treacherous mud, wagons sank to their axles and teams had to be doubled and tripled to move them. They cut a road where none had been before. Finally, reaching the Grand Encampment on the Missouri, they built hundreds of shelters, some very crude and others more comfortable. It was anything to get out of the treacherous weather. All during that winter of 1846 in those frontier establishments, forges roared and anvils rang with the making of wagons. My own grandfather, barely out of his teens, became an expert blacksmith and wagon builder. No vocation was more useful in those days than that of the ability to shape iron. He would later build his own wagon and, with his young wife and baby and his brother-in-law, set off for the West. Somewhere on that long journey, his wife sickened and died, and his brother-in-law died on the same day. He buried them both, tearfully said goodbye, tenderly picked up his child, and marched on to the valley of the Great Salt Lake. In the spring of 1847, the wagons of the first company pulled out of winter quarters and headed west. Generally, they followed a route along the north side of the Platte River. Those going to California and Oregon followed a route on the south side. The Road of the Mormons later became the right-of-way of the Union Pacific Railroad and the Transcontinental Highway. As we all know, on July 24, 1847, after 111 days, they emerged from the mountain canyon into the Salt Lake Valley. Brigham Young declared, this is the right place. I stand in reverent awe of that statement. They might have gone on to California or Oregon, where the soil had been tested, where there was ample water, where there was a more equable climate. Jim Bridger had warned them against trying to grow crops in this valley. Sam Brannan had pleaded with Brigham to go on to California. Now they looked across the barren valley with its saline waters shimmering in the July sun to the west. No plow had ever broken the sun-baked soil. 
Here stood Brigham Young, 46 years of age, telling his people this was the right place. They had never planted a crop, nor known a harvest. They knew nothing of the seasons. Thousands of their numbers were coming behind them, and there would yet be tens of thousands. They accepted Brigham Young's prophetic statement. Homes soon began to spring from the desert soil. Trees were planted, and the miracle is that they grew. Construction of a new temple began, was begun, a task that was to last unremittingly for 40 years. From that 1847 beginning to the coming of the railroad in 1869, they came by the tens of thousands to their Zion in the mountains. Nauvoo was evacuated. Its temple was burned by an arsonist and its walls later fell in a storm. Missionary work had begun in England in 1837. It spread from there to Scandinavia and gradually to Germany and other countries. All who were converted wanted to go to Zion. That gathering was not a haphazard operation. Church agents were responsible for every detail. Ships were commissioned to bring the immigrants to New Orleans, New York, and Boston. The ultimate goal was always the same, the valley of the Great Salt Lake, from which place many of them would spread in all directions to found new cities and settlements, more than 350 of them in the Rocky Mountain area. Hundreds died on that long trail. They died of cholera and black canker, of sheer exhaustion and hunger and the bitter cold. Most noble, as we've heard, among those who paid a terrible price were the Willie and Handcart Companies of 1856. There were not wagons enough to carry all who were converted in England and Western Europe. If they were to come to Zion, they would have to walk, pulling a small cart behind them. Hundreds did so and traveled faster than did the ox teams. But these two companies in 1856 literally walked with death. They started late, and no one knew they were coming. Their carts were not ready. A few who could afford wagons were assigned to travel with them to give assistance. They started west, singing as they went. Little did they know what lay ahead of them. They walked beside the Platte, ever westward. Near Fort Laramie, their troubles began. Snow commenced falling. Their wagons were reduced. They knew they were in desperate circumstances as they slowly crept over the high plains of Wyoming. <coughs> Some 200 perished in that terrible, tragic march. Legion are the stories of those who were there and who suffered almost unto death and who carried of all of their lives the scars of that dreadful experience. It was a tragedy without parallel in the Western migration of our people. When all is said and done, no one can imagine, no one can appreciate or understand how desperate were their circumstances. I wish to pay tribute to the people of the Riverton, Wyoming stake, who've done so much to identify and complete the temple work and memorialize those who walked that march of death and terrible suffering. I could recount story after story, but there's no time for that. 
I mentioned very briefly only one. At Rock Creek Hollow, on property the Church now owns, is the common grave of 13 who perished in one night. Among them was a nine-year-old girl from Denmark who was traveling alone with another family. Her name was Bodil Mortensen. In October of 1856, wind-driven heavy snow was already two feet deep as those of the Willie Company tried to find some shelter from the terrible storm. Bodil went out and gathered brush with which to make a fire. Returning, she reached her cart with the brush in her arm. There she died, frozen to death. Starvation and bitter cold drained from her emaciated body the life she had fought for. We thank the Lord today that all of this is now behind us. <coughs> as much as a century and a half behind us, we stand today as the recipients of their great effort. I hope we are thankful. I hope we carry in our hearts a deep sense of gratitude for all that they've done for us. It is now 1997, and the future is ahead. As great things were expected of them, so, they, so are they of us. We note what they did and what they, with what they had. We have so much, so much more, with an overwhelming challenge to go on and build the kingdom of God. There is so much to do. We have a divine mandate to carry the gospel to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. We have a charge to teach and baptize in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Said the resurrected Savior, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We are engaged in a great and consuming crusade for truth and goodness. Fortunately, we live in a season of goodwill. There has come down to us an inheritance of respect and honor to our people. We must grasp the torch and run the race. Our people are found in positions of responsibility across the world. Their good reputation enhances the work of the Lord. Wherever we may be, whatever the circumstances in which we live, if there be anything virtuous, lovely, or of good report or praiseworthy, let us seek after these things. The little stone envisioned by Daniel is rolling forth in majesty and power. There are some who still corn, scorn. Let us live above it. There are still those who regard us as a peculiar people. Let us accept that as a compliment and go forth, showing by the virtue of our lives the strength and goodness of the wonderful thing in which we believe. At a time when families all across the world are falling apart, let us solidify our own. Let us strengthen them. Let us nurture them in righteousness and truth. With so great an inheritance, we can do no less than our very best. Those who have gone before expect this of us. We have a mandate from the Lord. We have a vision of our cause and purpose. Let us seek out the righteous of the earth who will listen to our message of salvation. 
Let us bring light and truth and understanding to a generation that is prone in its disillusionment to look for other things. God has blessed us with wonderful facilities in which to teach the living truth. We now have meeting houses scattered across the continents. Let us use them to nurture our people with the good word of God. We now have temples far and wide and are building more, that the great work of salvation for the dead may go forward with an ever-increasing momentum. Our forebears laid a solid and marvelous foundation. Now ours is the great opportunity to build a superstructure, all fitly framed together with Christ as the chief cornerstone. My beloved brethren and sisters, how blessed we are! What a wonderful inheritance we have! It involves sacrifice, suffering, death, vision, faith, and knowledge, and a testimony of God the Eternal Father and His Son, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. The covered wagons of long ago have been replaced by airplanes that today thread the skies. The horse and buggy have been replaced by air-conditioned automobiles that speed over ribbons of highway. We have great institutions of learning. We have vast treasures of family history. We have houses of worship by the thousands. Governments of the earth look upon us with respect and favor. The media treat us well. This, I submit, is our great season of opportunity. We honor best those who have gone before when we serve well in the cause of truth. May the Almighty smile with favor upon us as we seek to do His will and go forward as a chosen generation, a royal priesthood and holy nation, a peculiar people. For this I humbly pray, as I both look back to the past and forward to the future in this anniversary year, and leave my testimony and blessing with you in the name of Him who is our Master, even the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. For the past several months, the attention of the Church has been focused on the extraordinary events surrounding the establishment of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints here in the Salt Lake Valley and elsewhere throughout the world. It is wonderful to note that the wards and stakes are using the year-long Pioneer Sesquicentennial Celebration as an opportunity to honor the Utah Pioneers of 1847 as well as the remarkable efforts of our pioneers in every land who have blazed spiritual trails with faith in every one of their footsteps. The handcart built in Siberia and presently moving through the missions of Russia and the Ukraine is a wonderful example of the worldwide effort to honor our pioneers. Plans are for the handcart to be pulled down Immigration Canyon on the final leg of its journey, arriving at This is the Place State Park on July 22nd. 
This is a year for remembering our past and drawing strength to face and conquer the challenges of today from the exemplary faith and courage of those who faced and conquered the challenges of yesterday. As we honor these great pioneers from many lands, we shall share historic accounts that will often bring tears to our eyes and feelings of pure gratitude to our hearts. Through music, drama, and stirring reenactments, we'll be reminded of incredible pioneer journeys, both temporal and spiritual. We cannot begin to understand the journeys made by those who laid the foundation of this dispensation until we understand their spiritual underpinnings. Once we make that connection, however, we will begin to see how their journeys parallel our own. There are lessons for us in every footstep they took, lessons of love, courage, commitment, devotion, endurance, and most of all, faith. For the Utah pioneers of 1847, their faith was grounded in principle. They left their homes, their temple, and in some cases their families in search of a place of refuge where they could worship without fear of persecution. There was little that they could carry with them in the way of provisions and material possessions, but each wagon and handcart was heavily laden with faith. Faith in God, faith in the restoration of His Church through the Prophet Joseph Smith, and faith that God knew where they were going and that He would see them through. One of those who traveled the Mormon Trail in 1847 referred to it as the Trail of Hope. I love that title, Trail of Hope. It speaks of a universal yearning of each person to find a safe heaven a community of saints where hearts are united and hope prevails. Those 19th century pioneers to whom we pay special tribute during this sesquicentennial year never set out to be heroes, and yet they accomplished heroic things. That's what makes them saints. They were a band of believers who tried to do the right thing for the right reasons. Ordinary men and women who were called on to perform an extraordinary work. At times, they gave in to discouragement and allowed themselves to murmur and complain. But ultimately, their faith in God and the man they sustained as their prophet and leader prevailed, and they righted their vision and attitudes along with their wagons. In the process, they found joy and the hardship of the trials of the trek. Nearly seven years before the pioneer exodus to the mountains of Utah, William Clayton wrote to his fellow saints in England, urging them to come to Zion, not realizing that Zion would soon be in wagons and handcarts moving west. He wrote, Although we are distant from each other, I do not forget you. But to the praise of God be it spoken, all I have endured has never hurt nor discouraged me, but done me good. We have sometimes almost suffocated with heat, sometimes almost froze with cold. We've had to sleep on boards instead of feathers. 
We have had our clothes wet through without privilege of drying them or changing them, had to sleep out of doors in very severe weather, and many such things as you have no idea of. Yet we have been healthy and cheerful. If you will be faithful, you have nothing to fear from the journey. The Lord will take care of his saints. William Clayton would later pen the lyrics to, the, to Come, Come, Ye Saints during the trek across Iowa. He and a host of others would learn even more intimately during the 1,300-mile exodus to Utah that there is nothing to fear in the journey if faith is your constant companion. Is there a lesson in the pioneer experience for us today? I believe there is. The faith that motivated the pioneers of 1847, as well as pioneers in other lands, was a simple faith, centered in a, the basic doctrines of the restored gospel, which they knew to be true. That's all that mattered to them, and I believe that should, is all that should matter to us. Our faith needs to be focused on the fundamental truths that God lives, that we are His children, and that Jesus Christ is His only begotten Son, and He is our Savior. We need to know that they restored the Church to the earth in its fullness through the Prophet Joseph Smith. Through the restored gospel of Jesus Christ, we learn that our Father's plan for the happiness of His children is clear and quite simple when studied and accepted with real faith. Traveling from Nauvoo to the valley of the Great Salt Lake in 1847 is not unlike a young missionary from Idaho traveling to Siberia in late 1993 as one of the first Latter-day Saints to labor in that land. Nearly every day our missionaries arrive in countries where they have little knowledge of the language and where the food, culture, and living conditions are often much different from that which they are accustomed to. And yet they go boldly as modern pioneers, not fearing the journey, walking with faith in every footstep to bring to people everywhere the good news of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. Our faith can help us be equally bold and fearless during the course of our respective journeys, whether we are the parents working with a troubled child, a single parent trying to raise a worthy family, a young, or young people struggling to find a place in a wicked and confusing world, or a single person trying to make the journey through life alone. No matter how difficult the trail, and regardless of how heavy our load, we can take comfort in knowing that others before us have borne life's most grievous trials and tragedies by looking to heaven for peace, comfort, hope, hopeful assurance. We can know, as they knew, that God is our Father, that He cares about us individually and collectively, and that as long as we continue to exercise our faith and trust in Him, there is nothing to fear in the journey. 
Like the pioneers of 1847 who, who ventured west along the trail that kept them relatively close to life-sustaining fresh water from rivers, particularly the Platte and the Sweetwater, we need to follow and partake of the living water of Christ to refresh our faith and sustain our efforts as we travel the road through mortality. Life isn't always easy. At some point in our journey, we may feel much as the pioneers did as they crossed Iowa, up to our knees in mud, forced to bury some of our dreams along the way. We all face rocky ridges with the wind in our face and the winter coming on too soon. Sometimes it seems as though there is no end to the dust that stings our eyes and clouds our vision. Sharp edges of despair and discouragement jut out of the terrain to slow our passage. Always there is a devil's gate which will swing wide open to lure us in. Those who are wise and faithful will steer a course as far from such temptation as possible, while others, sometimes those that are nearest and dearest to us, succumb to the attraction of ease, comfort, convenience, and rest. Occasionally, we reach the top of one summit in life, as the pioneers did, only to see more mountain peaks ahead, higher and more challenging than the one we've just traversed. Tapping unseen reservoirs of faith and endurance as we, as did our forebears, inch ever forward toward that day when our voices can join with those of all pioneers who have endured in faith, singing, All is well, all is well. And how will we feel then? as we stand shoulder to shoulder with the great pioneers of Church history. How will they feel about us? Will they see faith in our footsteps? I believe they will, particularly as they view our lives and experiences from the expanded perspective of eternity. Although our journeys today are less demanding physically than the trek of our pioneers 150 years ago, they are no less challenging. Certainly it was hard to walk across a continent to establish a new home in a dry western desert. But who can say if that was any more difficult than is the task of living faithful, righteous lives in today's confusingly sinful world, where the trail is constantly shifting and where divine markers of right and wrong or being replaced by political expediency and diminishing morality. The road we travel today is treacherous, and the scriptures tell us it will continue to be so until the very end. But our reward will be the same as that which awaits worthy pioneers of all ages who live faithfully the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ, make right choices, and give their all to build the kingdom of God on earth. We are the inheritors of a tremendous heritage. Now it is our privilege and responsibility to be part of the Restoration's continuing drama, and there are great and heroic stories of faith to be written in our day. 
It will require every bit of our strength, wisdom, and energy to overcome the obstacles that will confront us. But even that will not be enough. We will learn, as did our pioneer ancestors, that it is only in faith, real faith, whole-souled, tested and tried, that we will find safety and confidence as we walk our own perilous pathways through life. We are all bound together, 19th and 20th century pioneers and more, in our great journey to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and to allow His atoning sacrifice to work its miracle in our lives. While we all can appreciate the footsteps of faith walked by Joseph Smith and his followers from Palmyra to Carthage Jail and across the Great Plains, we should ever stand in reverential awe as we contemplate the path trod by the Master, His faithful footsteps to Gethsemane and to Calvary. Calvary rescued all of us and opened the way for us to turn to our heavenly home. Let us remember that the Savior is the way, the truth, and the life. And there can be no greater promise than to know that if we are faithful and true, we will one day be safely encircled in the arms of His love. He is always there to give, to give encouragement, to forgive, and to rescue. Therefore, as we exercise faith and are diligent in keeping the commandments, we have nothing to fear from the journey. Three of my grandsons stood with me on the crest of the hill known as the Eminence last summer, looking down at the sweet water where the Willie Company had, was stranded, cold, starving. We read from their journals of the joy of their rescue. As John Chislett wrote, Just as the sun was seeking, be sinking beautifully behind the distant hills, several covered wagons were seen coming towards us. The news ran through the camp like wildfire. Shouts of joy rent the air. Strong men wept till tears ran freely down their furrowed and sunburned cheeks. That evening, for the first time in quite a period, the songs of Zion were to be heard in the camp. With the cravings of hunger satisfied and with hearts filled with gratitude to God and our good brethren, we all united in prayer and then retired to rest. At that moment, standing on the same hill from which the Willie Company first saw their rescuers, I contemplated the joy that will fill our hearts when we fully come to know the eternal significance of the greatest rescue, the rescue of the family of God by the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is through Him that we have promise of eternal life. Our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is the source of spiritual power that will give you and me the assurance that we have nothing to fear from the journey. I know the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and our unwavering faith in Him will see us safely along our journey through life to which I humbly testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. amen.